First part of The Diary of a Superfluous Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Diary of a Superfluous Man by Ivan Turgenev. Translated by Constance Garnet. Part One Village of Sheep's Springs, March the twentieth, eighteen. The doctor has just left me. At last I have got at something definite. For all his cunning, he had to speak out at last. Yes, I am soon, very soon, to die. The frozen rivers will break up, and with the last snow I shall most likely swim away. Whither? God knows. To the ocean, too. Well, well, since one must die, one may as well die in the spring. But isn't it absurd to begin a diary, a fortnight perhaps, before death? What does it matter? And by how much are fourteen days less than fourteen years, fourteen centuries? Beside eternity, they say, all is nothingness. Yes, but in that case eternity too is nothing. I see I am letting myself drop into metaphysics. That's a bad sign. Am I not rather faint-hearted, perchance? I had better begin a description of some sort. It's damp and windy out of doors. I'm forbidden to go out. What can I write about, then? No decent man talks of his maladies. To write a novel is not in my line. Reflections on elevated topics are beyond me. Descriptions of the life going on around me could not even interest me. While I am weary of doing nothing, and too lazy to read. Ah, I have it. I will write the story of all my life, for myself. A first-rate idea. Just before death it is a suitable thing to do, and can be of no harm to anyone. I will begin. I was born thirty years ago, the son of fairly well-to-do landowners. My father had a passion for gambling. My mother was a woman of character, a very virtuous woman. Only I have known no woman whose moral excellence was less productive of happiness. She was crushed beneath the weight of her own virtues, and was a source of misery to everyone from herself upwards. In all the fifty years of her life, she never once took rest, or sat with her hands in her lap. She was forever fussing and bustling about, like an ant, and to absolutely no good purpose, which cannot be said of the ant. The worm of restlessness fretted her night and day. Only once I saw her perfectly tranquil, and that was the day after her death, in her coffin. Looking at her, it positively seemed to me that her face wore an expression of subdued amazement. 
with the half-open lips, the sunken cheeks, and meekly staring eyes, it seemed expressing all over the words, How good to be at rest! Yes, it is good, good to be rid at last of the wearing sense of life, of the persistent, restless consciousness of existence. But that's neither here nor there. I was brought up badly and not happily. My father and mother both loved me, but that made things no better for me. My father was not, even in his own house, of the slightest authority or consequence, being a man openly abandoned to a shameful and ruinous vice. He was conscious of his degradation, and not having the strength of will to give up his darling passion, he tried at least by his invariably amiable and humble demeanour, and his unswerving submissiveness, to win the condescending consideration of his exemplary wife. My mother certainly did bear her trial with a superb and majestic long-suffering of virtue, in which there is so much of egoistic pride. She never reproached my father for anything, gave him her last penny, and paid his debts without a word. He exalted her as a paragon, to her face and behind her back, but did not like to be at home, and caressed me by stealth, as though he were afraid of contaminating me by his presence. But at such times his distorted features were full of such kindness, the nervous grin on his lips was replaced by such a touching smile, and his brown eyes, encircled by fine wrinkles, shone with such love, that I could not help pressing my cheek to his, which was wet and warm with tears. I wiped away those tears with my handkerchief, and they flowed again without effort, like water from a brimming glass. I fell to crying too, and he comforted me, stroking my back and kissing me all over my face with his quivering lips. Even now, more than twenty years after his death, when I think of my poor father, dumb sobs rise in my throat, and my heart beats as hotly and bitterly, and aches with as poignant a pity as if it had longed to go on beating, as if there were anything to be sorry for. My mother's behaviour to me, on the contrary, was always the same, kind but cold. In children's books one often comes across such mothers, sermonising and just. She loved me, but I did not love her. Yes, I fought shy of my virtuous mother, and passionately loved my vicious father. But enough for today. It's a beginning, and as for the end, whatever it may be. I needn't trouble my head about it. That's for my illness to see to. March the 21st. Today it is marvellous weather, warm, bright, the sunshine frolicking gaily on the melting snow, everything shining, steaming, dripping, the sparrows chattering like mad things about the drenched dark hedges. Sweetly and terribly, too, the moist air frets my sick chest. Spring, spring is coming. 
I sit at the window and look across the river into the open country. Oh, nature, nature, I love thee so, but I came forth from thy womb good for nothing, not fit even for life. There goes a cock-sparrow, hopping along with outspread wings. He chirrups, and every note, every ruffled feather on his little body, is breathing with health and strength. What follows from that? Nothing. He is well, and has a right to chirrup and ruffle his wings. But I am ill, and must die, that's all. It's not worth while to say more about it and tearful invocations to nature are mortally absurd. Let us get back to my story. I was brought up, as I have said, very badly and not happily. I had no brothers or sisters, I was educated at home, and indeed what would my mother have had to occupy her if I had been sent to a boarding school or a government college? That's what children are for, that their parents may not be bored. We lived for the most part in the country, and sometimes went to Moscow. I had tutors and teachers, as a matter of course. One in particular has remained in my memory, a dried-up, tearful German, Rickmann, an exceptionally mournful creature, cruelly maltreated by destiny, and fruitlessly consumed by an intense pining for his far-off fatherland. Sometimes near the stove, in the fearful stuffiness of the close anteroom, full of the sour smell of stale kvass, my unshaved man-nurse, Vasily, nicknamed Goose, would sit, playing cards with the coachman, Potap, in a new sheepskin, white as foam, and superb tarred boots, while in the next room Rickman would sing behind the partition. Herz, mein Herz, warum so traurig? Was bekümmert dich so sehr? Es ist ja schön in fremden Lande. Herz, mein Herz, was willst du mehr? After my father's death, we moved to Moscow for good. I was twelve years old. My father died in the night from a stroke. I shall never forget that night. I was sleeping soundly, as children generally do. But I remember, even in my sleep, I was aware of a heavy gasping noise at regular intervals. Suddenly I felt someone taking hold of my shoulder and poking me. I opened my eyes and saw my nurse. What is it? Come along, come along. Alexei Mihailich is dying. I was out of bed and away like a mad thing into his bedroom. I looked. My father was lying with his head thrown back all red and gasping fearfully. The servants were crowding round the door with terrified faces. In the hall someone was asking in a thick voice, Have they sent for the doctor? In the yard outside a horse was being led from the stable. The gates were creaking. A tallow candle was burning in the room on the floor. My mother was there, terribly upset but not oblivious of the proprieties, nor of her own dignity. I flung myself on my father's bosom, and hugged him, faltering, Papa! Papa! He lay motionless, screwing up his eyes in a strange way. I looked into his face. An unendurable horror caught my breath, 
I shrieked with terror, like a roughly captured bird. They picked me up and carried me away. Only the day before, as though aware his death was at hand, he had caressed me so passionately and despondently. A sleepy, unkempt doctor, smelling strongly of spirits, was brought. My father died under his lancet, and the next day, utterly stupefied by grief, I stood with a candle in my hands before a table, on which lay the dead man, and listened senselessly to the bass sing-song of the deacon, interrupted from time to time by the weak voice of the priest. The tears kept streaming over my cheeks, my lips, my collar, my shirt-front. I was dissolved in tears. I watched persistently, I watched intently, my father's rigid face, as though I expected something of him, while my mother slowly bowed down to the ground, slowly rose again, and pressed her fingers firmly to her forehead, her shoulders, and her chest, as she crossed herself. I had not a single idea in my head. I was utterly numb, but I felt something terrible was happening to me. Death looked me in the face that day and took note of me. We moved to Moscow after my father's death for a very simple cause. All our estate was sold up by auction for debts. That is, absolutely all, except one little village, the one in which I am at this moment living out my magnificent existence. I must admit that in spite of my youth at the time, I grieved over the sale of our home, or rather, in reality, I grieved over our garden. Almost my only bright memories are associated with our garden. It was there that one mild spring evening I buried my best friend, an old bobtailed, crook-pawed dog, Trix. It was there that, hidden in the long grass, I used to eat stolen apples, Sweet, red, Novgorod apples they were. There, too, I saw for the first time, among the ripe raspberry bushes, the housemaid, Klavdia, who, in spite of her turned-up nose and habit of giggling in her kerchief, aroused such a tender passion in me that I could hardly breathe, and stood faint and tongue-tied in her presence. And once at Easter, when it came to her turn to kiss my seignorial hand, I almost flung myself at her feet to kiss her downtrodden goatskin slippers. My God, can all that be twenty years ago? It seems not long ago that I used to ride on my shaggy chestnut pony along the old fence of our garden, and, standing up in the stirrups, used to pick the two-coloured poplar leaves. While a man is living, he is not conscious of his own life, it becomes audible to him, like a sound, after the lapse of time. Oh, my garden! Oh, the tangled paths by the tiny pond! Oh, the little sandy spot below the tumble-down dyke, where I used to catch gudgeons! And you tall birch-trees, with long hanging branches, from beyond which came floating a peasant's mournful song, broken by the uneven jolting of the cart. I send you my last farewell. On parting with life, to you alone I stretch out my hands. 
Would I might once more inhale the fresh, bitter fragrance of the wormwood, the sweet scent of the mown buckwheat in the fields of my native place. Would I might once more hear far away the modest tinkle of the cracked bell of our parish church, once more lie in the cool shade under the oak sapling on the slope of the familiar ravine, once more watch the moving track of the wind, flitting a dark wave over the golden grass of our meadow. Oh, what's the good of all this? But I can't go on today. Enough till tomorrow. March the 22nd. Today it's cold and overcast again. Such weather is a great deal more suitable. It's more in harmony with my task. Yesterday, quite inappropriately, stirred up a multitude of useless emotions and memories within me. This shall not occur again. Sentimental outbreaks are like licorice. When first you suck it, it's not bad, but afterwards it leaves a very nasty taste in the mouth. I will set to work simply and serenely to tell the story of my life. And so we moved to Moscow. But it occurs to me, is it really worth while to tell the story of my life? No, it certainly is not. My life has not been different in any respect from the lives of numbers of other people. The parental home, the university, the government service in the lower grades, retirement, a little circle of friends, decent poverty, modest pleasures, unambitious pursuits, moderate desires. Kindly tell me, is that new to anyone? And so I will not tell the story of my life, especially as I am writing for my own pleasure. And if my past does not afford even me any sensation of great pleasure or great pain, it must be that there is nothing in it deserving of attention. I had better try to describe my own character to myself. What manner of man am I? It may be observed that no one asks me that question, admitted. But there I'm dying, by Jove, I'm dying, and at the point of death I really think one may be excused a desire to find out what sort of a queer fish one really was, after all. Thinking over this important question, and having moreover no need whatever to be too bitter in my expressions in regard to myself, as people are apt to be who have a strong conviction of their valuable qualities, I must admit one thing. I was a man, or perhaps I should say a fish, utterly superfluous in this world. And that I propose to show tomorrow, as I keep coughing today like an old sheep, and my nurse, Terentyevna, gives me no peace. Lie down, my good sir, she says, and drink a little tea. I know why she keeps on at me. She wants some tea herself. Well, she's welcome. Why not let the poor old woman extract the utmost benefit she can from her master at the last? As long as there is still the chance. March the 23rd. Winter again. The snow is falling in flakes. Superfluous! Superfluous! 
that's a capital word I have hit on. The more deeply I probe into myself, the more intently I review all my past life, the more I am convinced of the strict truth of this expression. Superfluous, that's just it. To other people that term is not applicable. People are bad or good, clever, stupid, pleasant and disagreeable. But superfluous, no. Understand me, though, the universe could get on without those people, too, no doubt. But uselessness is not their prime characteristic, their most distinctive attribute. And when you speak of them, the word superfluous is not the first to rise to your lips. But I, there's nothing else one can say about me. I'm superfluous and nothing more. A supernumerary, and that's all. Nature apparently did not reckon on my appearance, and consequently treated me as an unexpected and uninvited guest. A facetious gentleman, a great devotee of preference, said very happily about me that I was the forfeit my mother had paid at the game of life. <sighs> I am speaking about myself calmly now, without any bitterness. It's all over and done with. Throughout my whole life I was constantly finding my place taken, perhaps because I did not look for my place where I should have done. I was apprehensive, reserved and irritable, like all sickly people. Moreover, probably owing to excessive self-consciousness, perhaps as the result of the generally unfortunate cast of my personality, there existed between my thoughts and feelings and the expression of those feelings and thoughts, a sort of inexplicable, irrational, and utterly insuperable barrier. And whenever I made up my mind to overcome this obstacle by force, to break down this barrier, my gestures, the expression of my face, my whole being, took on an appearance of painful constraint. I not only seemed, I positively became unnatural and affected. I was conscious of this myself, and hastened to shrink back into myself. Then a terrible commotion was set up within me. I analysed myself to the last thread, compared myself with others, recalled the slightest glances, smiles, words of the people to whom I had tried to open myself out, put the worst construction on everything laughed vindictively at my own pretensions to be like everyone else, and suddenly, in the midst of my laughter, collapsed utterly into gloom, sank into absurd dejection, and then began again as before, went round and round, in fact, like a squirrel on its wheel. Whole days were spent in this harassing, fruitless exercise. Well, now, tell me, if you please, to whom and for what is such a man of use? Why did this happen to me? What was the reason of this trivial fretting at myself? Who knows? Who can tell? I remember I was driving once from Moscow in the diligence. It was a good road, but the driver, though he had four horses harnessed abreast, hitched on another alongside of them. Such an unfortunate, utterly useless fifth horse, 
fastened somehow on to the front of the shaft by a short stout cord which mercilessly cuts his shoulder forces him to go with the most unnatural action and gives his whole body the shape of a comma always arouses my deepest pity i remarked to the driver that i thought we might on this occasion have got on without the fifth horse he was silent a moment shook his head lashed the horse a dozen times across his thin back and under his distended belly and with a grin responded ay to be sure why do we drag him along with us what the devil's he for and here am i too dragged along but thank goodness the station is not far off superfluous i promised to show the justice of my opinion and i will carry out my promise i don't think it necessary to mention the thousand trifles everyday incidents and events which would however in the eyes of any thinking man serve as irrefutable evidence in my support i mean in support of my contention i had better begin straight away with one rather important incident after which probably there will be no doubt left of the accuracy of the term superfluous i repeat i do not intend to indulge in minute details but i cannot pass over in silence one rather serious and significant fact that is the strange behaviour of my friends i too used to have friends whenever i met them or even called on them they used to seem ill at ease as they came to meet me they would give a not quite natural smile look not into my eyes nor at my feet as some people do but rather at my cheeks articulate hurriedly ah how are you chulkaturin such is the surname fate has burdened me with or ah here's chulkaturin turn away at once and positively remain stock still for a little while after as though trying to recollect something I used to notice all this, as I am not devoid of penetration and the faculty of observation. On the whole, I am not a fool. I sometimes even have ideas come into my head that are amusing, not absolutely commonplace. But as I am a superfluous man with a padlock on my inner self, it is very painful for me to express my idea, the more so as I know beforehand that I shall express it badly it positively sometimes strikes me as extraordinary the way people manage to talk so simply and freely it's marvellous really when you think of it though to tell the truth i too in spite of my padlock sometimes have an itch to talk but i did actually utter words only in my youth in riper years i almost always pulled myself up i would murmur to myself come we'd better hold our tongue and i was still we are all good hands at being silent our women especially are great in that line many an exalted russian young lady keeps silent so strenuously that the spectacle is calculated to produce a faint shudder and cold sweat even in any one prepared to face it but that's not the point and it's not for me to criticise others I proceed to my promised narrative a few years back owing to a combination of circumstances very insignificant in themselves but very important for me 
it was my lot to spend six months in the district town O. This town is all built on a slope, and very uncomfortably built too. There are reckoned to be about eight hundred inhabitants in it, of exceptional poverty. The houses are hardly worthy of the name. In the chief street, by way of an apology for a pavement, there are here and there some huge white slabs of rough-hewn limestone, in consequence of which even carts drive round it instead of through it. In the very middle of an astoundingly dirty square rises a diminutive yellow edifice with black holes in it, and in these holes sit men in big caps, making a pretense of buying and selling. In this place there is an extraordinarily high striped post sticking up into the air, and near the post, in the interests of public order, by command of the authorities, there is kept a cartload of yellow hay, and one government hen struts to and fro. In short, existence in the town of O is truly delightful. During the first days of my stay in this town, I almost went out of my mind with boredom. I ought to say of myself that, though I am no doubt a superfluous man, I am not so of my own seeking. I'm morbid myself, but I can't bear anything morbid. I'm not even averse to happiness. Indeed, I've tried to approach it right and left. And so it is no wonder that I too can be bored like any other mortal. I was staying in the town of O on official business. Terentyevna has certainly sworn to make an end of me. Here's a specimen of our conversation. Terentyevna. Oh, oh, my good sir, what are you forever writing for? It's bad for you keeping all on writing. I. But I'm dull, Terentyevna. She. Oh, you take a cup of tea now and lie down. By God's mercy, you'll get in a sweat and maybe doze a bit. I. But I'm not sleepy. She. Ah, sir, why do you talk so? Lord have mercy on you. Come, lie down, lie down. It's better for you. I. I shall die anyway, Terentyevna. She. Lord bless us and save us. Well, do you want a little tea? I. I shan't live through the week, Terentyevna. She. Hey, hey, good sir, why do you talk so? Well, I'll go and heat the samovar. Oh, decrepit, yellow, toothless creature! Am I really, even in your eyes, not a man? End of part one. Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey.